Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. If you're just joining us, if you haven't been with us before or haven't been with us for a while, we are going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And it's a long book. So we've been here for a while and, um, uh, and we want to pick up and, uh, and cover the first part of uh, probably the first half or so of uh, chapter 7 tonight, if we can, if we get there. Um, I'll remind you of what we've done and where we've come from. Paul began in the last few verses of chapter 4, and, and the book of Hebrews is, uh, uh, well, doctrinally, it's a little bit, it's divided up differently than any of the other letters that Paul wrote. And the reason for that is because Paul understands that the, that the Jews that he writes to understand things about the law that the Gentiles never did. And so as a result, he deals with some things in, in specific manner and, and uh, refers to certain people and certain events that he never even talked to the Gentiles about. Um, and, and for that reason, I, I don't know why the translators didn't pick up on this, but uh, the translators really did not divide this in chapter and verse, or, or at least the chapter breaks, uh, based on subjects. So in the beginning in the last part of chapter 4, um, Paul, I believe the, the writer, the author was the, of the book is Paul, begins to talk about Jesus being the high priest. Now the, the theme of the whole book is, is better. He shows how that what we have under Jesus and by, because of the sacrifice of Jesus is better than anything that they had under the old covenant because that's what they keep going back to. They keep going back to the law of Moses. So he's trying to show them there's no point in going back to the law of Moses because what you've got now is better. So he starts in chapter, the end of chapter 4 talking about Jesus being our high priest. Chapter 5 he continues talking about Jesus and his high priestly ministry. But uh, notice in chapter 5 as he begins to speak of Jesus, he, he brings up Melchizedek. Verse 10 he says, uh, again talking of Jesus, it says, Jesus was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered seeing you are dull of hearing. And then he goes through and talks about what baby Christians they are. In other words, Paul is saying, there's a lot of things I want to tell you about Melchizedek, but I'm not sure I can. Now, it's, um, this is almost a cliffhanger. Because as soon as he mentions Melchizedek, and, and never to the Gentiles is Melchizedek ever mentioned. Never. And there's a reason for that. Because if Paul started writing to Melchizedek, the, the Gentiles that he's writing to are going to say, who? Who's that? And, and why is he important? Why has he got such a weird name? There's no reason for him to talk about Melchizedek to anybody other than the Jews because nobody other than the Jews know who he is. But Melchizedek is a real problem for the Jews. I'll explain that as we go a little bit further. But Paul says Jesus is called after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's quoting Psalm 110 verse 4. It's a psalm of David. God reveals to David that Jesus, the Messiah to come, would be called to stand in a high priestly ministry like Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, even in David's day, was a problem for the rabbis because nobody knows anything about this guy. They don't know where he came from. They don't know, what, what, you know why he was there. They don't really even know what he did. There's one example or one event that the Bible tells us about that, that any historical writings tell us about Melchizedek, and that's in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham paid tithes to him. But otherwise, they don't know anything about him. And, and everything in the, in, in the Jewish culture centered around the high priest. I don't know if you know this or not, but God originally intended the nation of Israel to be governed by the priests. Samuel was, uh, stood in the office of a priest. Now, he also operated as a prophet. But in the Old Testament, Samuel operated as a priest. And that's when it was during Samuel's reign that, uh, that the, the Jews came and said, we want a king. Samuel said, no, you don't. 
I'm the one that God is using to lead the, the nation of Israel. And they said, well, everybody else has got a king. We want a king. And so Samuel starts complaining to God about it. And God says, what are you complaining about? They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Well, that's certainly true. But right on the other hand, Samuel lost a lot. Huge. He lost a huge place in the importance of the nation of Israel, as did all of the other high priests that would follow him. Because God originally intended for his people Israel to be governed by his representative. Then when they said, we want to be like everybody else, God said, all right, I'll pick your kings. And, for the, and he picked the first two. Uh, well, actually, the first three, I guess. Saul, David, and Solomon. After that, it was pretty much whoever is born to who. And so there was an element of representation there by God, but it wasn't based on spiritual things. That's why Saul messed up. That's why Solomon messed up. That's why everybody after Solomon was a complete mess up, with very few exceptions. And so the high priest position, the high priest office, was huge where the Jews were concerned. Well, as Gentiles, we don't know anything about the high priest. I mean, we know that Jesus, the high priest, you know, offered sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, and, and he went into the holy place, and Jesus fulfilled all that, and isn't that wonderful? And, and, and the high priest wore special garments and stuff like that, and that represents Jesus' purity, and, and isn't that just great? But to the Jews, the high priest was everything. The office, the service of the tabernacle and the temple was everything. So when he starts talking about Jesus being the high priest, it means a lot to them. When he starts talking about Jesus being called after the order of Melchizedek, that means a lot too. Because they're looking at their high, the Jews' high priest, the high priest that existed at the time that Paul wrote this letter, is after the order of Aaron, not the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, or so, um, what's his name? Paul picks up at the end of chapter 6 after talking about the Jews being immature and here's how to get back on track and, and you need the word of God to feed on the word of God. You need to accept it as truth and don't keep going back and forth to the, to the Old Testament, the law of Moses and, and that kind of stuff. He concludes all this, here's how to get back on track speech with verse 20. He says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says that three different times in a chapter and a verse he is impressing upon them the scripture that they know that they never could understand back in psalm 110 verse 4 that the messiah would be called after the order of melchizedek not the order of aaron not that not after the tribe of levi but after the order of melchizedek the guy they don't know anything about so when paul starts writing to them about melchizedek they know who paul is they know he's got the same training if not greater training than the high priest in office now Plus, they've heard about all the miracles that he's done. They're so concerned about the success he's having in ministry that the church of Jerusalem is sending people out to mess those churches up and try to get them back over onto the law. So when Paul starts talking about Melchizedek, he has everybody's attention. We don't see it, do we? See, it doesn't make, any, it doesn't make that much sense to us because we don't have that kind of history. But it does to them. So when he starts in, in what we know of as chapter 7, picking up again with the story of Melchizedek, he has everybody's attention. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. That's what the name means. It means king of righteousness. 
and after also king of Salem. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 14 that uh, Melchizedek was uh, the king of Salem. Literally, he was of Salem and he was the priest of God. So his name means prince of righteousness and his office was king of Salem. So he says, uh, after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That's what Salem means in, uh, in Hebrew. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now notice that phrase, made like unto the Son of God. Now I want you to notice the difference in something he's already said and something he says now. He says in verse 20 that Jesus is made after the order of Melchizedek. Now in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse, what is it? Uh, verse 3, he says that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God. Well, which one's first? Psalm 110, verse 4, which is the prophecy that they know refers to the Messiah, is that Melchizedek is first, and then the Messiah will come in his order, or made after his order of high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 now says that Jesus was first, and then Melchizedek was made like him. That's a contradiction. Any way you look at it, that's a contradiction. We've got to explain that. How is that explained? Let's keep reading a little bit, and we'll back up and talk about it. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, some people will take, take verse 3, say, all right, Jesus, or Melchizedek was without father, and he was without mother, he was without descent, so that means he had to be Jesus. Well, then why does Paul call him a man in verse 4? Never in the Old Testament do you see Jesus appearing as a man he's appeared as an angel he appears in a burning bush he appears in a glory cloud never as a man and if you think about it for jesus to appear as a man a pre-incarnate appearance of jesus meaning before he was born into the earth for him to come to the earth looking like a man that kind of takes away from who he is doesn't it paul says he's a man well, then why does it say he's without father and without mother and without descent? It doesn't mean that he didn't have a father and mother. It means we don't know who they were. That's important to the Jews. Because everything about the priesthood goes back to Aaron. It goes back to the tribe of Levi that was chosen from the people of Israel to become the high priest. You couldn't be a high priest unless you were of the tribe of Levi, unless your descendants, uh, your, uh, your forefathers were directly traced back to Aaron. You couldn't do it. It was impossible. Well, then how could Melchizedek even be a high priest? Now, I want you to hold your finger here. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 14. Because there's some things that, that I think are going to be important for us to see. They're helpful to me, at least, in understanding the things of God. I hope they will be to you, too. Genesis chapter 14 tells the story of how four kings came out and, and faced at five other kings in battle. Now, there's a little bit more to the story. The, there's the, the king, uh, uh, I don't know how to say his name, uh, Keterleomer, king of Elam. Elam was the, the most dominant nation at that point in time. And he was the head guy. He was the, the leader of, the, of the, the bad guys. He was the godfather, I guess. And, uh, and as a result... He had other nations that were under his rule. He had conquered other nations, and he had ruled over them. It says in verse 4 of chapter 14, it says he had ruled over them for, for 12 years. But in year 13, these other, other people rebelled. 
The king of Sodom rebelled, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Zoar. These guys apparently got together and said, we're tired of being ruled by this Cheddarland, whatever his name is, I don't know. We're tired of being ruled by this king of Elam. And so what we want to do is we want to revolt, but now we've got to stick together on this. And so apparently that's what they did. So it took a year, it was year 14, but the king of Elam gathered these other three kings together. There's four of them total, and apparently they're the big dogs on the block when it comes to kings and armies and that kind of thing. And they came, and they wanted to, to subjugate these rebellious lands back under their rule. And so they did, and they whipped these five other kings. Now, the five other kings, the, if, you, if you look at a map, you'll find out the five kings were kings of cities, but the four kings were kings of regions, territories. And so the four kings greatly outnumbered the five kings, even though it, it sounds like five is greater than four. The armies of the four kings would have been much, more, more, uh, much greater and much more powerful and so forth. So word comes to, to Abraham. He hears about this. Lot lived in Sodom. And his stuff was taken along with all of the other spoils of the city. Now, folks, that's the way that it worked in the olden days when kings would make war with one another. The winning king would take all the goods and all the spoils and all the food and all the other assets, whatever they considered to be valuable, with them and would leave the city stripped bare. He would take the men that were of fighting age and he would make slaves out of them. And so that all, all that was left in many cases, would be the women or the old folks or the people that were, were uh, maybe of, of mature age, but they weren't able, maybe they were disabled, they couldn't fight or whatever. It was left unto them to rebuild their cities and, and, and restock their barns and all this other kind of stuff. It's a real, real serious thing. And, and the, the, these, these soldiers had a specific and individual stake in everything that they gained. So they're, they're not being nice and saying, okay, we'll let you keep that. They're stripping everything that they can find. Abraham finds out about this, and he takes 300 men of his, ar- of his servants and arms them and goes out against these four kings. Now, that says to me Abraham knew he was somebody. Because if five cities, the kings of five cities, were beaten by these four armies, these four regional armies, and Abraham goes out against them with, with 300 guys... He's got to be more outnumbered than the five kings were. Got to be. But he knew God was on his side. He knew that the blessing that God had said to him was, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Somebody just took his nephew and all of his nephew's stuff. He goes out against these guys and defeats them. When God's on your side, folks, numbers don't matter. Did you hear what I said? Now, I'm sure you're thinking in line with the story. Numbers that you fight with don't matter. I didn't say that. I said when God's on your side, numbers don't matter. Economic numbers don't matter when God's on your side. Tax numbers don't matter when God's on your side. Government action and whatever they impose on you, Proposition 30 doesn't matter when God's on your side. Are you following me? That's the principle here. We're not talking about who we're going to go fight. Let's go to hand-to-hand combat. Forget that. That's not, our, that's not the fight that we've got. Ours is a fight of faith. But when God's on your side, the world's numbers don't matter. God's on your side, and he brings you into victory. That's the point I want you to see here. Now, 
the reason I want you to see that is because this story illustrates something for us. It's going to show us something that will help bring us into victory, whatever we're facing. It's not just about Abraham. So, let's pick up the story in um, verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him. This is Abraham who's bringing back, well, I guess we better back up uh, to verse 16. Verse 16 is talking about Abraham, and he brought back all the goods. That means five cities full of stuff. If there's a wagon load or two wagon loads per city, he's got a big train following him back to where he's going. And he brought back all of the goods and also brought again his brother or kinsman, literally Lot, and his, brother, his goods and his women also and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after the return from the slaughter of the king of Elam and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava which is the king's dale and melchizedek first time we've ever heard of this guy notice he shows up pops up out of nowhere he's kind of like elijah the bible doesn't tell us anything about elijah it just says and elijah the tishbite stood up and said to the king it's not going to rain for three years because i said so where did he come from nobody knows here's the same kind of thing with melchizedek melchizedek king of salem brought forth bread and wine what does that represent we know that represents the cross of Jesus. It represents his body and his blood. What representation did that have in their day? None other than just having a feast. Bread and wine was what you served at dinner. It had no spiritual connection back in that time. Folks, if you're thinking about the high priest ministry, the high priest ministry was the offering of blood, the shedding of blood on behalf of the people unto God. Bread and wine had no meaning other than just it was something that you showed hospitality to others. We know that it has a spiritual meaning. It represents Jesus. That's what Melchizedek brought. He brought to him bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, here's something else the Jews know that we sometimes forget or overlook. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are different from any other books in the Bible. There's a mathematical equation to the letters. It's unlike any other writings in the history of the world. Um, Einstein, one of his life's works was try to figure out what is the mathematical equation or the mathematical code connected with the first five books of the Bible. Scientifically, they can identify there is something different about these writings than any other thing that's ever been written. Lay it next to the Koran, there's no mathematical code to the Koran. It doesn't even make sense. Take the Bible, compare that to any other historical writings, any other, any other novel, any other great work, literary work. There's something different about those first five books of the Bible. Do you know what it is that's different about them? The Jews understand because Moses told the children of Israel, and it was passed down in the oral tradition. Moses told them that God dictated it to him letter by letter. So the first five books of the Bible are an eyewitness account. It's an eyewitness account of God telling Moses what happened before Moses came on the scene. So this is God giving an eyewitness account. He was there, he ought to know. Giving an eyewitness account of what happened in Abraham's day. Now, take a little side journey just to interject something here. The creation account. As much as modern science and the education systems and all that kind of stuff try to poo-poo the, the creation account and all oh, that's just fairy tale and all that kind of stuff it is the most accurate account 
of anything that could have possibly happened because it's eyewitness testimony. It's God saying, here's what happened. And he was the only one that was there. Yet medical si- or, uh, yet uh, uh, science, the scientific community, tries to say, oh, no, it happened like this. There was once a little slime in the mud, and somehow or another that broke up into something else. You can't prove it. There's no way to prove it. Yet there's no way to disprove what's in the Bible. No matter what science tells you, no matter who says what about evolution, we prove this, that, and the other, the only proof, so-called proof, that there's ever been for the evolutionary theory has been fraudulently made. And if evolution was right, well, I mean, wouldn't there be some kind of fossil record somewhere? We've got fossil records of everything else. But every fossil record that's ever been promoted as an, uh, an evidence or a proof of evolution has been somebody deliberately taking two different fossils and putting them together and saying, here's the, the adaptation or the evolutionary process. It doesn't exist. And there never will be anything that exists because this is God's eyewitness testimony of what happened. Now, that's what the Jews know about Genesis chapter 14. So here's what that means. It means God is saying, Melchizedek was my priest. Now, that opens up a real can of worms for a couple of reasons. Number one, where did he come from? God didn't see fit to tell him that. How did he get chosen to be high priest? Or not high priest, he may have been the only priest. How did he chosen to be priest? How was he chosen to be the priest of God? Nobody knows. There's no way to answer it other than to assume since God's saying he's my priest, God must have made him so. You can't make yourself one. The Levitical priesthood didn't come by by them making themselves one. They had to be born into it. It had to have been a very specific thing. They couldn't do anything about it. You either were or you weren't. You didn't choose yourself. We have to assume the same thing's true of Melchizedek. Here's another problem. Why... Would God make a high priest that was not of Abraham when Abraham's the guy he makes promises to? Even further, we don't know the ages of, of, uh, of Melchizedek. We know pretty much how, how old Abraham was. We don't know how old Melchizedek was. It's very possible that Melchizedek was high priest or the priest of God before God ever appeared to Abraham and said, follow me and I'll give you these things. Then if that's the case, why didn't God make the promises to Melchizedek instead of Abraham? Can you see the problem that the Jews have with Melchizedek? The problem that the Jews have is he doesn't fit anywhere. And lineage means everything to the Jews. Everything. Because they can't be the high priest or any of the priesthood unless they can track back their lineage. You got this guy coming out of nowhere. Abraham. You remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees. They proudly declared, Abraham is our father. Well, there was one greater than Abraham when Abraham was alive. Paul says that in chapter 7 of Hebrews. We just read that. How how great Melchizedek would have been that Abraham paid him tithes. You see the problem they have with Melchizedek? So when Paul starts talking about Melchizedek, when he starts revealing things by the Holy Ghost, what are they going to say? They've got no answers. So, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. 
Now, folks, in the, the series that we're teaching on Sundays, we've been talking a lot about the, uh, the blessings of God for the, the children of Israel and how that relates to our new covenant blessings. We have a better covenant established upon better promises. We've been talking about a, a lot about the financial blessings and material possessions and, and things that God said that he would do for his people then and now. You remember the one warning that he gave the children of Israel. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18. He said, when your lands increase and your flocks and your herd multiply and your silver and your gold multiplies and you take over these cities and conquer them and live in good houses, build your own houses and take over the things that you didn't, the, the fields you didn't plant and all these other good things come into your hand. What's the one warning he gave them? He said, remember that you don't forget God. Make sure you don't forget God and say, my power and my the work of my hands has brought all this wealth into, into my possession. That's what he's saying. This is the first example that we have of the blessing of God being attacked by the enemy. Now, what happens? Abraham's coming back. He's got a whole wagon train of stuff following him. He's got his 300 servants and all the people he's, he's gathered and all the goods that he's regained, recaptured, the women and all the other kinds of things. Whatever is, was taken, he's recaptured it all. doesn't say they lost a person. He brings back everything. First thing that happens, Melchizedek shows up and says, what does he say? Abraham, here's an offering envelope. Make sure you pay your tithes. No. This is going to be important when we get back over to Hebrews chapter 7. He says, blessed art thou, Abram, because God is great. What are the three blessings he pronounces? Blessed be Abram of the Most High God. That means God is his, or Abram is God's, more accurately. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thine hand. In other words, he focuses his attention first and foremost. Great victory focuses first and foremost back on God. And the blessings that he has are due to God's work. Folks, I could, if we took the time, we could show you t example after example of great victories that are followed by great defeats. You remember, I'll give you one example and, and let you figure out some others for yourself, if you will. You remember uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel? He calls for the contest between the 450 prophets of Baal. He said, how long halt you between two opinions? If God's God, let's serve him. If Baal's God, okay, let's serve him. You remember the story? They have the contest. We're going to offer a sacrifice. You offer your sacrifice to Baal, all 450 of you. You do your thing. I'll offer a sacrifice unto God, and the God that answers by fire, he's God. You remember? Great victory. We'll cut through the story. They did everything. The prophets of Baal did everything they could. It was to no avail. Abraham, or I'm sorry, Elijah puts the altar back together, soaks it down with water. It, they was in the middle of a drought. It was the mo water was the most precious commodity on the face of the earth at that moment. He soaks it down with water, does everything he can, makes it as hard as possible, and says one simple prayer. says, Father, show uh, God in heaven, show that you are God, show that I'm your servant, and show that I've done these things at your word. Fire fell, falls, vaporizes everything. Elijah kills 450 of the prophets of Baal, all of them. He does it personally with the sword, the Bible says. Now, I'm not sure you can get away with that today. But that's how it happened. What's the very next thing that happens? He gets a note from Jezebel, the, the wicked queen, who says, this time tomorrow I'm going to cut your head off. 
And that leads to Elijah's greatest defeat because he heads for the hills. Why? Elijah, come on. Is God out of fire? Did he use it all up on Mount Carmel? Why don't you walk over to the palace and say, come on, woman. Let's see what you can do. We saw what your 450 prophets could do. Let's see about you now. Seriously, why would he not do that? Don't you imagine that after the great victory, he would have the opportunity to say, man, I found the prayer that works. But he doesn't. He heads for the hills. On the heels of every victory is going to be the enemy trying to turn it into defeat. That's what's happening here. He is going to be faced with the, uh, Abram is going to be faced with the same thing that you and I are faced with in every, every time and every circumstance that God brings blessing into our life. Notice it says, skip down with me to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a, from a, a thread even to a shoe latchet, that means a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Now notice what he says here. He says, I have lift up my hand already. What does that mean? That means after some time, either before, the, before the, 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 the great defeat of these four kings or after he was bringing back the spoils, somewhere prior to this point in time, in Genesis chapter 14, Abram has already decided, I'm not going to keep any of this stuff. I'm not going to treat this stuff like mine. Why? Because of the same warning that God gave the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18. Make sure when you come into blessing that you don't get to thinking that it was you. Abram is more concerned about it being said that God made him rich and that God brought him into victory than having stuff. Now let me show you something else about this. Melchizedek does not take the tithe. Abraham gives it. With that in mind, turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Let me show you how this fits. Now folks, the stuff that I'm talking to you about this may be stuff that we think, well, we've never even thought about that before. This is all the Jews think about. This is so basic stuff for the Jews that Paul knows that this is what they understand when he's talking about these things. When he says simple words like uh, Melchizedek was a man, well, that cuts crossways with a lot of Jews' doctrine. A lot of the Jews think it was an angel. Paul says he's a man. Well, how are they going to argue with it? They can say, well, we don't think so. But why would the Messiah be called after the order of an angel to be high priest forever? See, there's a lot of questions that you just can't answer. And Paul knows you can't answer them. He's been on both sides of this fence. So now he says, we'll start again in verse 4. It says, now consider how great this man was to, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. By the way, before I get any further, I, I probably should make mention in, chapter, in uh, uh, chapter 7 and verse 3 where it says that Melchizedek was made like unto the Son of God and abides a priest continually. Some of this is just a little blind to us by the, by the wording, the translation into the English. Because literally what it's saying is not that Melchizedek abides a priest forever. It's talking about Jesus abiding for, as a priest forever. Look at verse 17. 
Verse 17 is where Paul says again for the third time that Jesus is abiding as a priest continually. For he testifies, this is Psalm 110 verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's not Melchizedek that stands as a priest forever. It's Jesus that stands as a priest forever. The fact that we don't know, or they didn't know, well, we don't either, where Melchizedek came from, what his descendancy was, who was his mother, who was his father, the fact that we don't know any of that kind of stuff, points to the fact that he was a supernatural man in a supernatural position. Not that he wasn't human. Just that God had a supernatural thing in place. That's what it's talking about. Again, verse 4. Now consider who this man was, who is greater than Abraham. He's going to go further in a few verses and say the, the, the greater is always the one that does the blessing of the lesser. So for Abram to be paying tithes to Melchizedek is Abraham recognizing this guy's greater than I am. Which is a type of Abraham's uh, attitude toward God and the Messiah to come. Now, the part that we don't see is that every time that the Bible is said, even beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where it says the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, you know, go where I tell you to go and I'll bless you and I'll make you a blessing, make your name great and that kind of stuff. That was Jesus. That's just the way it works. God's the one that makes the plan. Jesus is the one, is the one that carries out the plan or executes the plan. The Holy Ghost is the one that helps in the plan, helps in the execution. That's just the way it works. Jesus is always the hand of God at work. So when God planned to make a a covenant with man, Jesus is the one that comes to the earth to execute it. Just like God planned redemption and to send his son in the form of human flesh, Jesus is the one that comes and fulfills it. It's the way it works. They never cross purposes, folks. They've all got their individual jobs, individual purposes. It's the way it works. Jesus is the Lord that has been appearing unto Abraham and will appear unto him all the days of his life in every account that we, every example that we have account, a record of. Jesus is the one. This is his, Jesus, the Lord's representative. Melchizedek is the Lord's representative. So Abraham gives him deference as if it's the Lord himself. And that's why he's such a great man. We don't know anything about Melchizedek himself. We don't know if he was a man of faith or not. We assume that he would be if he's a priest unto God. But it's not his faith we're told about. It's Abraham's. It's not his descendancy or his lineage that we're told about. It's Abraham's. So why, what made Abraham or what made Melchizedek greater than Abraham? He was the representative of the one who made the promises to Abram. Does it make any sense? Here's how it fits. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. We'll say it again. The Jews took great pride in saying, Abraham is our father. Well, this is who Abraham looked up to. This is who Abraham gave deference to. This is who Abraham honored. The one that was the forerunner of Jesus in his high priestly ministry. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood. Notice this phrase. That means the present-day priests have a commandment to take tithes. It doesn't say they accept them, folks. It says they have a commandment to take them. In other words, Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, in our day, in your culture, 
you guys are still living by this since you put yourself back under the law. Under our understanding, the priests are commanded to take the tithes. That's not what Melchizedek did, folks. Melchizedek did not come to Abraham and say, all right, God sent me here to tell you about this thing called tithing. That's not what happened. It was Abraham's attitude of recognizing that God was his source, that he wasn't going to let the possessions that he had gained with God's help to define his life or create his reputation. As a result, he gave Abraham, the representative of the Lord, the tithes of all. Abraham simply received what he gave. That's different from the way the priesthood operated under the law of Moses. There was no choice. It was a commandment. Here's the point. Well, let me read a couple of other verses and then we'll, we'll make the point. Verily they that are of the sons of Levi, that means the present day priesthood in Paul's day, who receive the office of the priesthood, they don't have anything to do with that. God either makes them one or he doesn't. They have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. In other words, the law commands the tithe. Please get that phrase. The law commanded the tithe. The law commanded the tithe. The law didn't suggest the tithe. The law commanded the tithe. Stick with me. Don't let that bring you under condemnation. Stick with me. They have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is of their brethren, other Jews though they come out of the loins of Abraham. In other words, he's saying, he's making the point, that when you pay your tithes according to the commandment of the law, you're not giving to somebody that's greater than you. You're giving to the priests in the temple who are equal with you. We're all, you're all brothers and uh, sons of Abraham. That's not what Abraham did with Melchizedek. Not what he did at all. Verse 6. But... He whose descent is not counted, that means who we don't have record of. Doesn't mean he didn't have a descent. It means we don't have record of what it was. He whose descent is not counted from them, them meaning the tribe of, uh, the tribe of Levi, received tithes of Abraham. He didn't take them by commandment. He received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Get that. Abraham, or Melchizedek blessed Abraham who had the promises of God. Melchizedek didn't have the promises. He was simply God's representative. He was the priest. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. He's making the point again. You put all your eggs in Abraham's basket, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now here's the point he's trying to make. Their manner of tithing was commanded. It was a commandment of the law. Abraham's example of the tithe was not part of the law. And there's two different examples. The part of the law and, the, and everything Paul's making, the whole argument he's making is that the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. The new covenant is greater than, than Christianity is greater than Judaism. It's greater than the law of Moses. Why? Because Abraham willingly giving, choosing, initiating on his own, to pay tithes to Melchizedek as God's representative is a picture of the new covenant manner of tithing. Free will. Choice. Not commandment. Not do it or else. But a choice that came as a result of the blessing that God had brought into the individual's life. Their manner of tithing 
that the sons of Levi take from them was by commandment. Now notice that having set the stage, notice the very next thing that he says. Verse 8. And here men that die receive tithes. Now that tells us when this book was written. It was written before 70 A.D. because in 70 A.D. the Romans um, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took it apart, didn't leave one stone left uh, laying upon another, stacked upon another, just like Jesus said. That was the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, and it happened in 70 A.D. So this has got to be written before 70 A.D. Because Paul does not say, remember when you used to pay tithes to the temple? Remember when the high priest used to receive them and the priesthood used to take the tithes? That's not what he says. He said, here men that die receive tithes. It's still going on. They're still worshiping in the temple, which may have been one of the big stumbling blocks that they had because the Jews are continuing to go along with the ritual sacrifices and all those things yearly and and seasonally and all the other kind of things that the Old Testament commanded. And the Jewish Christians are being pulled back and forth. What do we do? Do we go to the the, the festival that's going on in the temple? Do we not? What do we do? That you can understand how that would be a real dilemma for some folks. So notice what he says. And here men that die receive tithes. Why? Because it's the commandment of the law. But, uh, but there he, notice, receiveth them as in italics. That means the translators added it. But it's, it's accurate. It's, it's, uh, it follows the, the reasoning. But there he receiveth them of whom it is written or whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Now, who's the he that receives it there? He's talking about Jesus. Now, why does Jesus receive tithes? Well, until the law was fulfilled, Jesus received tithes under the old covenant commandment of Moses because it was a commandment. Because it was something that they were due, they were bound to do. But Paul does not say but that tithing stuff has been fulfilled. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. That's all part of the law. That's over with because it was only defined by the law. Because it wasn't. Tithing began before the law was ever given. Hundreds of years before the law was ever given. Almost 2,000 actually. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm confusing numbers. But hundreds of years before the law of Moses was ever given, Abraham paid tithes in Melchizedek. Here's the difference. Abraham's manner of paying tithes was a New Testament example. Moses' commandment to tithe, that part was done. Now we have the same example of paying tithes like Abraham did, but it's not the do it or else. It's not the this is due, this is required of you in order for you to have some grace of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible only speaks of to the Gentiles. Paul never talks about tithing. He only talks about the grace of giving. Why? Why didn't he separate that out? We know there's two different things. We know there are tithes and we know there are offerings. Why doesn't Paul talk to the Gentile church about both of them? Because everything now under the new covenant is free will. Whether it's the tenth to follow Abraham's example or whether it's something more that God puts on your heart to do. It's all free will now. But notice he doesn't tell them to stop because it's been fulfilled by the law. So tithing is still the accurate and proper thing to do. But the attitude of the heart's different now. Let me... Let me uh, uh, put it in this context. Maybe you'll understand. How many of you pay your taxes? Oh, don't. I'm not going to look. Never mind. I don't, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to ask that. Let me, let me, let's speak hypothetically. Those of you that pay taxes, do you do it willingly or do you do it because you have to? I do it because I have to. I don't like a thing about it. They want me to pay too much. They waste what I give them. 
and they never have enough. It is not a pleasant thing. That's what tithing under the law was. It was a do it or else. Only reason I pay my taxes is because I don't want to go to jail. Just being honest. <laughs> this might get me in more trouble than stuff I said about politics. said about the election. <laughs> That's the difference. Tithing, totally different thing. I love paying my tithes. It gives me such a sense of fulfillment on the inside because I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm not doing it to keep God from being bad at me. Folks, you don't operate under a curse because you don't tithe. Now, some people are going to take this wrong and they, they might run off with it and, and, and that's up to them. I'm not worried about it costing the church money because if somebody's got the wrong attitude, it's not going to last for long anyway. But it's not a do it or else. It's a do it because God's blessed you. It's a do it because you realize God's the source of everything that you have. It's a cliche, but it's true. You can't take your stuff with you. Everything here is God's. Because as soon as you and I die, as soon as you and I leave the thing, leave the, the, the premises, nothing that we ever had here. We call it ours. It's my car, it's my house, it's my possessions, and there's none of it's yours. Because none of it stays with you. You go to a better place and leave everything here. It's all God's, and you and I are just simply stewards. The question is, are we going to be good stewards and are we going to be stewards over a lot or over a little? That's the only question there is. The Bible says that if we work in, in concert with God and operate in his word, we can be good stewards of a lot. And that's the blessing of Abraham. Do you see why he's talking about Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Get your eyes off Abraham, Jews. That's what he's telling them. Get your eyes off Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to the one that represented Jesus. Jesus is called after the order of Melchizedek to be a high priest forever. Tribe of Levi, high priest in the temple nowadays, they're wasting their time. They're going through the motions trying to fulfill something that's already been finished. Verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. In other words, he's saying the high priest which comes from the tribe of Levi, was in Abraham's loins. He hadn't yet been born at the time that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So Abraham paying tithes on behalf of him and his seed, because that's who the promises were made to, also include Levi. So the ones that you're paying tithes to owe the same deference to Jesus, who's the, after the order of Melchizedek and the high priest forever. Now, the high priest is the one that's sending out emissaries to disrupt the churches. The high priest is the one that's sending people out to the churches at Galatia that Paul has just reamed out. By the way, for those of you that aren't familiar with this, historical evidence, there's a real good, uh, I hate to say use the word chance, because I believe it's a lot more than chance. But the, the best guess we can make is that the book of Galatians was attached to the book of Hebrews when it was originally written with the understanding, Paul having the understanding that the letter to the Hebrews would either be taken, copied, or whatever to Jerusalem so that it would be a message to them. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, you see what a large letter I've written with my own hand. Well, what's he talking about? Well, large doesn't mean big, tall letters. It means a long letter because both of them were connected. 
Well, the book of Galatians by itself couldn't be. It's only six chapters. It's a whole lot shorter than the book of Romans. It's a whole lot shorter than the book of Corinthians. It's, it's really shorter than most every other one that he wrote. So there had to be something more to it. It's the book of Hebrews. Paul is saying to the Jews, the Jewish Christians, quit looking at the high priest and what the high priest is doing. He's only taking you back into this set of rules, do's and don'ts, that you can't keep, which is the whole reason that they keep going back in, in chapter 6 and trying to relay the thing and trying to get saved again because who knows if we've done right. How, what makes them think that? Well, folks, anybody that's trying to live under a set of rules and regulations knows they're always going to fall short. That's what causes you to question, am I okay with God? Even to the point where you might think, I'm not, I'm not even sure if I'm saved anymore. That's his whole point. So he said, Levi paid tithes in Abraham too. For he was yet in the loins of his father, verse 10, when Melchizedek met him. If therefore, here's the whole reason he's talking about this stuff, verse 10. If therefore perfection, completeness, right standing with God, were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? In other words, he's saying there were high priests in David's day when he prophesied that the Messiah would be called after the order of Melchizedek and be a high priest forever. If the Levitical priesthood, which executes the law, the high priest which administers the law on behalf of God to the people, if that's the thing that makes you complete and that's the struggle that they're having, they're leaving the principles of Christianity and going back over into trying to keep the law of Moses and sacrifices and all that stuff. He said, if that makes you perfect, then why did God ever say he was going to call someone to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, pre-Abraham, instead of Aaron and Levi? What's he just done? He's wrapped them up tighter than a drum to show them. Jesus, the high priest in heaven, for all of eternity is greater than anything the law can ever provide you keeps with the whole theme of the book Jesus is better everything that you're turning away from for everything all the, the doctrines of Christianity and the, the finished work of Jesus that you're turning back to try to get something by performing before God making God say you think you're okay in large part because the priesthood is telling you this is what you need to do if that's what made you perfect, then why was the Messiah ever going to be after the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Aaron? Remember the high priest's biggest concern about Jesus? I, I guess it's uh, part A and part B, really, but it's the same thing. They were concerned that if we leave him alone, everybody will believe on him. Number one. Number two, the real crux of the, of the matter is if everybody believes on him, then the Jews, or then the Romans, will come and take away our place. That's the problem for the high priest and all of the priesthood with Christianity. They're no longer needed. You think they're going to lay down for that? That's why you had some in the priesthood that had given their lives to Jesus. They had become Christians, but they won't stick with it. They want to mix Christianity and the law together. And folks, that's always been the issue. That's what the devil wants to try to make you and me do too. He wants to make you think that, okay, you're saved. That's good. God loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know. That's really great. But unless you do things just right, he's not going to be happy with you. 
Well, folks, we should do things right. We should live right. We should turn away from sin. We should walk in love. We should develop ourselves in what the Bible says. But it's not to make God happy. God loved you enough to send Jesus for you to begin with. It doesn't make God happy. It makes you worthy of what you've been called into. It doesn't earn you salvation. It just makes you worthy of the salvation that you've already entered into. It's not for, you, for him that you and I live right. It's for us. It doesn't change his attitude toward us one way or the other. He loves us and sees us in the blood of Jesus. It's for us that we do right because it brings blessing into our life. It helps us to walk in the, all the fullness of victory that Jesus purchased for us. So yeah, we should do right. But why? To make God happy? To make God like us or think better about us? Nope. That was all done in Jesus. It's so that we can partake of what Jesus purchased. It's so that we can stand without sense of condemnation. The condemnation doesn't from God, come from God. It comes from the devil, first of all, and then usually we pick up on it too. It's so that we can stand with a pure conscience and stand just like Abraham did. And when something comes up against us that we're badly outnumbered, we can say, that's all right, God's on our side. Numbers don't matter. John said it this way. He said, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. Well, what keeps your heart from condemning you? Living according to what the Bible says to do. If being saved kept you from being condemned, then everybody that was saved would have confidence and faith toward God. We know that's not the case. Well, then what is it? It's being successful in our growth process. Nobody gets there overnight, but it's, being, it's successfully growing toward being the image of Jesus here on the earth. And the more you grow in the things of God, the more confidence you have in Him, the more the Word becomes alive to you, the more the blessings of God come into reality in your lives, because then it's not a matter of the devil being able to talk you out of it. It's that you learn how the principles of faith operate. It's you and I learn how to receive from God and how to walk in the things that He's provided. It's not for Him. It's for us. Same thing's true where tithing is concerned. God's not mad at you if, if you don't tithe. But there are blessings that come from putting God first in everything that you have. The blessing of the tither was not a part of the law. Malachi is not issuing the dictates of the law. He's telling them, you're cursed because you failed to operate in the commandment. But here's the blessing. Now remember, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means the curse of not tithing. It includes the curse of not tithing along with other things. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of not tithing. For what purpose? So that the blessing of Abraham could come on the Gentiles. That means you can have the blessing of the tither without the curse of not tithing. Well, then what does that mean? Should we tithe according to the law of Moses principle, where it's commanded and you do it or else? No. But by Abraham's example, it was his heart to make sure that everything that he had was giving honor and glory unto God through his representative Melchizedek. Our representative now is Jesus, our high priest, which is seated at the right hand of the Father. And every time you and I pay tithes, because it's from our heart, it's a witness to the fact that he's alive. Who's it witness to? Well, I'm not sure that it really makes a difference to me when I pay my tithes. It doesn't make me know that Jesus is more alive than before I paid him. 
but it sure does show the world something. Uh, folks, I, I'm, I'm sorry if this seems like it dominates everything that I say and everything that I'm preaching, but it is so big on the inside of me, I think it's going to be a real big issue in the last days. I think it's going to be a huge issue in the last days because it's going to be one of the things that separates the church from the world. When the world is taking more and more, especially the, the, the way that America is going, when they're taking more and more and more of your stuff, what are we going to do? What are we as Christians going to do? I don't know about you, but I'm going to keep honoring God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, how are we going to be able to make it? If, we, if, if they take another 10% of our money in taxes, what are we going to be able to do? How are we going to be? That was my tithe. How are we going to be able to tithe? Well, folks, I can't make that decision for you. But for me, the decision's already made. I'm kind of like Abraham before it happens. I've already sworn that I'm not going to be caught up in keeping things. I'm going to keep God first. And you know, there's just something about putting pressure on the word. There's just something about making it impossible for God to come through. Lord, I can't do this. I don't have it to be able to do it. Really? Well, that sounds like the territory that only God could operate in. And if we're doing it for the right reason, if we're doing it to honor God like Abraham did, then if God does more for Abraham than he does for us, then he's unfair and he's unjust and he's not who he says he is in his word. So for me, the decision's made. How about you? I believe it's going to be more important to make the kind of heart decisions that are necessary the closer and closer and closer we get to the end. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. It's our privilege to honor you as our high priest, the representative of our Father, because you've brought us into fellowship with him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making the blessing of Abraham ours as we show Abraham's heart and attitude toward you. Thank you, Father, for all that it means to us to accept Jesus in the position of honor as our high priest. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.